All right. Well, I don't want to um, penalize everybody who was here on time, um, so let's get started. Um, so again, I'm going to I'm going to talk about poisonings and toxidromes today, um, and uh, go through some things with you all. Um, this is geared more towards um, you know board studying and 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 uh, fellow level. Uh, uh, thinking with regards to um, sort of review as well as um, including inclusive of some uh, board level questions. Um, so uh, unfortunately, I just discovered that the uh, participle that I had set up um, is not working, so we won't be as um, as uh, interactive as I would like. Um, however, you know, I invite you all to uh, follow along closely, and if you have uh, the answer, uh, you know, feel free to shout it out or put it into uh, the chat, uh, and I will see if I can see that as well. Um, so, you know, there's no, you, you can't really have a conversation about poisonings and toxidromes, at least with me, without talking about uh, the deadliest poison known to man, which is iocane powder. Um, as you all know, I'm sure it's colorless, odorless, and dissolves instantly in water. That happens to be from Australia. Um, and it is best known for killing one person in the Battle of Wits. And this is when we were going to all start to use our participle, um, but unfortunately, uh, we are not able to. So this is the one question that I will wait for an answer for before moving on. Um, if anybody has the answer, uh, please let me know. If it's been written in the chat, unfortunately, I don't think I can see the chat. Really? No one has the answer? Someone in the chat said B. B, Bazzini, that is correct. Very good. All right. Uh, and so this is from the movie um, The Princess Bride, um, which, uh, you know, is, is, is a classic of classics. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently, I highly recommend it. <laughs> uh, but indeed, Bazzini was the one who uh, was killed uh, 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 during the Battle of Wits. So um, poison uh, in general uh, is something that has been known to humankind for, for, for millennia. Um, uh, previously uh, based on uh, poison found from uh, plants and animals and used in hunting. Um, the, uh, Mithridates VI um, was the first who, in sort of antiquity, who identified poison um, as a uh, potential means of uh, murder uh, and, and harm, uh, and also uh, worked to try and uh, understand uh, its background. So he was referred to as the enigmatic poison king. He challenged Roman imperialism, and he was thought to be the first toxicologist. He was also thought to be unpoisonable. Um, he took daily amounts of small poisons to make himself immune. Uh, but he didn't just treat himself, um, so he tested poisons and remedies on condemned criminals um, and his friends uh, as well as himself. So, uh, so he sounds like a really nice guy to hang out with. Um, but he actually came up with something called Mithridatum, which was uh, one of the first antidotes. It has 65 ingredients, um, and it was the world's most popular prescription for over a 1,000 years. Uh, it was actually highly sought after during the Middle Ages and Renaissance, and it was last seen for sale uh, in Rome in the 1980s. Um, now, that was before the Internet. Um, so if you go to uh, the Google uh, and, you, and you type in Mithridatum, uh, not only can you find it, but you can also find the ingredients on Wikipedia uh, and the amount of grams per. So um, if you have any free time this afternoon, I highly recommend it. Um, so today I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, the epidemiology of poisonings, uh, the general approach to poisonings, um, different toxidromes, uh, and then toxic alcohols. Epidemiology, uh, so 1.1 million annual ED visits in the United States for poisoning, and about a quarter of those require hospitalization. Um, so this is not inconsequential. Um, age 35 to 54 is the highest number of poisonings and overdoses. 
um, which I, is interesting, actually. I think that um, I, was, I would have expected that number to be a little bit lower uh, age-wise. Um, and 70.6% of all drug overdose deaths are opioids. Uh, that, is, that is current um, as of uh, this year uh, and, and has continued to grow, unfortunately. When thinking about um, ingestions, um, you know, the general approach is uh, to an unknown ingestion or exposure is, is, uh, is supportive care, right? Uh, and you want to treat the patient, not the poison, uh, is the classic teaching. Um, if, if the patient arrives quickly after uh, ingestion or poisoning, um, the, the goal is to prevent absorption uh, and, and pot potentially uh, participate in enhanced elimination techniques. Um, if the patient is altered and it's unknown from what, uh, you can consider giving thiamine, glucose, and naloxone. Uh, these are three medications that are um, that are uh, uh, have potential significant benefit and and minimal harm. Um, and then while this initial assessment and supportive care is ongoing, you want to search uh, the history, uh, drugs, uh, and family collaboration to see what what the patient may have taken. So first, for prevention of absorption, um, this can be done in a variety of ways, and a variety of things have, have, have been tried in the past. So the first is induced emesis, um, and that's with uh, syrup of Ipecac. That's currently not recommended because of the uh, many potential uh, harms and, and, and risks associated with uh, inducing vomiting. Gastric lavage was practiced uh, more in the past, um, but uh, in recent studies, there's been no really clear definite benefit for that. Um, and also high risks, uh, inclusive of vomiting, but also things like um, electrolyte abnormalities or, uh, or perforation. Activated charcoal is something that's used more frequently, um, and this is an organic compound which binds to multiple chemicals, which, which therefore prevent the GI absorption um, of medications. And then bowel irrigation used less often but can be used, which is the use of polyethylene glycol um, for, uh, to, to basically clear the bowels or increase transit time. Um, this is often used in patients who have a known ingestion um, of packets of drugs uh, for smuggling purposes, uh, to remove them from the body before they, uh, they burst. Uh, enhanced elimination can be thought of as enhanced elimination through the kidneys or other. Um, through the kidneys, uh, the classic is alkaline diuresis, so it's given sodium bicarb administration and followed with a diuretic. Uh, this actually promotes the elimination of barbiturates, primidone, and salicylates, and for salicylates, it's the first-line treatment. Chelation therapy, also if a patient has, uh, has ingested heavy metals, um, you can give uh, chelation therapy, which will enhance renal excretion. Enhanced elimination in, uh, in, uh, in other ways uh, would be also inclusive of uh, repeated charcoal dosing, which eliminates drugs uh, that um, have intrahepatic circulation. So um, as the, they're circulated, um, giving more and more uh, charcoal doses will allow for more and more removal of the drug. Um, and then lipid emulsion. Um, so if you treat with lipophilic medications, uh, uh, certain medications, if you, you can use to treat lipophilic medications, excuse me, and certain medications will then, uh, will then become inactive. Uh, classically TCAs, but also verapamil and beta blockers. It's thought to be this lipid sink where the, where the molecule itself is surrounded um, by lipids and therefore is unable to be uh, absorbed. Um, and then dialysis, of course. Um, so, so many drugs at, at a at sort of a last resort um, can be dialyzed off different toxic alcohols, amphetamines, phenobarb, lithium, uh, et cetera. 
but you want to assess clinically as well during this time, right? So you're, you're attempting to remove the drug early on, but um, if there's a question of what drug has been ingested or what the poisoning uh, has occurred, um, you know, looking at clinically and, and looking at different syndromes that can occur um, is important. Uh, and so there are certain toxidromes that exist that I wanted to go through with all of you. And the five most classic ones are cholinergic, anticholinergic, sympathomimetic, narcotic, uh, and serotonin syndrome. Uh, so some questions that will not work with Participol. Uh, so the first one, there are reports of mass casualties after an explosion in downtown D.C. Um, your emergency room is mobilized and you're assigned to surge for surge triage. The first patient arrives intubated after a seizure in the field with bradycardia. Meiosis and significant oral secretions are noted on exam. There's a concern for terrorism and potential chemical attacks. The most likely agent is what? So, some of these questions I've taken from the uh, more recent pulmonary boards or questions like these. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, as with all uh, questions, read through the stem and, and, and sort of pull out what they're trying to get at. Um, I've, of course, shrunk the stem substantially. They're usually like six or seven paragraphs long. But in this case, the patient had a seizure. They had an exposure. Then they had seizures, bradycardia, meiosis, and significant secretions. And so that all goes with a certain syndrome, um, which if you identify and then know some of these different um, uh, chemical agents will, will lead you to the diagnosis. Um, and the diagnosis in this, in this situation is sarin or sarin gas. Um, the other uh, the other chemicals that were listed there, uh, chlorine and phosgene, those were really used um, with uh, devastating effects during World War One. They're classically irritants, um, and so they cause uh, irritation to whatever um, area of the body is exposed, um, and with inhalation, cause uh, choking, airway compromise, requiring intubation um, or death. Cyanide uh, interferes with mitochondrial respiration, and then sarin uh, is a potent organophosphate, and that is what was um, alluded to uh, with the syndrome of a cholinergic toxidrome in the question stem. Um, this picture here is of the, uh, of the uh, neuron and the synapse, uh, and with a cholinergic toxidrome, let me see if I can move this thing above. Um, what you can see here is uh, uh, with the cholinergic toxidrome, you see um, the, uh, anti, the uh, acetylcholine is released uh, through vesicles here, uh, you know, it activates the nicotinic receptors, the muscarinic receptors here, uh, and it builds up within the synapse. But acetylcholinesterase breaks that down, and it breaks it down um, in, into choline, uh, which then is reuptaked and made uh, back into acetylcholine, put back into vesicles and sort of recycled that way. And what happens with organophosphate exposure as well as other uh, cholinergic exposures is that the acetylcholinesterate is blocked. Uh, and by that being blocked, the acetylcholine uh, builds up in the synapse uh, and continues to activate over and over again the nicotinic or muscarinic receptors, causing overactivation of the postsynaptic receptors and overexcitation. Um, this has multiple effects, uh, central nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, uh, muscle, motor, end plate, and parasympathetic nervous system. The classic one is the parasympathetic nervous system effects uh, of muscarinic effects, and that's what leads to this sludge syndrome of salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI distress, and emesis. And these are all symptoms that you might, uh, might, might see in a patient who's presenting with cholinergic uh, overload. Um, this is a picture of classic patient um, that will, will have these symptoms. Of note, um, two other things you'll see is uh, bradycardia or tachycardia and hypotension or hypertension. So it sort of depends at the point and also the amount of cholinergic excess that the patient has. 
Um, the other thing is from a motor end plate perspective, weakness paralysis and fasciculations can be seen as well. Uh, and that's on top of the sort of classic picture of the sludge syndrome as I described. Causes, um, organophosphate and carbamate insecticides. And so cl classically, you know, board questions would be either a terrorist attack or cleaning out an old barn or farm worker, et cetera. Um, but but uh, the, the, the sarin gas uh, and nerve agents in general um, were used in the Tokyo uh, terrorist attacks in 1995. Um, also in the UK and Malaysia in um, uh, assassination attempts. And then more recently, Iraq and Syria um, during actual warfare used on other troops and, and, um, and civilians. Uh, but other cholinergic effects come from, uh, you know, other drugs that can cause cholinergic effects are nicotine, uh, polycarpine, physostigmine, edrophonium, uh, bethanicol. Um, and the, the, the cholinergic effect is, uh, is therapeutic. Treatment, um, so for nerve agents and organophosphate poisoning, um, pralidoxime is, is, uh, is sort of the uh, first or second line. Um, acetylcholinesterate, it's acetylcholinesterase reactivator. Um, so it, it basically um, reactivates the ability of acetylcholinesterate to break down the acetylcholine. Um, atropine has a direct anti-muscarinic effect. Um, and so it sort of counteracts the effect of the cholinergic agent, including causing drying of the pulmonary secretions, relief of bronchoconstriction, correction of hypotension and bradycardia, and mitigation of seizures. Uh, you know, it, it, interestingly, though, it requires a substantially higher dose um, to, to, to cause that effect and counteract the cholinergic effect. Uh, and it's much higher doses and repeatedly is what's necessary. So the highest reported dose actually was 3,600 milligrams in a 24-hour period. Uh, to counteract the effects of the pseudocidal ingestion of a cholinergic agent. If a patient is critically ill, you need to add benzos for anticonvulsant effects. Um, and then from cholinergic uh, effects or cholinergic overdose, death will come from central apnea, severe airway narrowing and excessive pulmonary secretions, along with respiratory muscle paralysis, emphasizing the need for supportive care uh, in patients that, uh, that, um, that present with this toxidrome. So for question number two, a 68-year-old female with a history of IBS and bladder spasms for which she receives hyosamine and oxybutynin was evaluated in the PACU for worsening delirium, tachycardia, and decreased urine output. At the time of induction, she received glycopyrrolate. She developed significant itching for post-op morphine for which she received diphenhydramine. A foley was placed and one and a half liters of urine was emptied from her bladder. What was the cause of her urinary retention? So was it traumatic foley insertion during the surgery? Uh, was it polypharmacy, was it delirium, or was it a history of bladder spasms? So in this case, the patient is presenting with a syndrome of delirium, tachycardia, decreased urine output, uh, and, then, uh, uh, and then also has received multiple medications uh, and, and urinary retention. Um, so, you know, uh, going through this, uh, not to make it or belabor the point since we don't have the participle, but um, whenever the, the, the list of the question stem has this many medications in them, you can think polypharmacy might be the, uh, might be the answer. And indeed, that is the answer. This is a list of a, a not incomplete list of um, anticholinergic medications. Um, and just to go back to that question, so um, all of these medications um, do have anticholinergic properties. So hyosamine, oxybutynin, um, glycopyrrolate, diphenhydramine um, can all can all cause. So together, um, uh, certainly, she could be presenting with an anticholinergic um, toxidrome. 
These are all the medications, and this is not a complete list. You, you could attempt to memorize all of these, um, but it, it makes more sense to think about them in different categories. So categories of antihistamines, antipsychotics, antispasmodics, tricyclic antidepressants, and then any deadly night, any, any uh, plants of the deadly nightshade category. Uh, the most classic one, of course, is Atropa belladonna, uh, which was used by Italian Renaissance women um, for its anticholinergic effect. Um, as a beauty aid because it caused pupillary dilatation um, and flushing and redness of the cheeks. Um, what happens during, uh, during an anticholinergic uh, uh, toxidrome um, at the, uh, neuronic, uh, the, the, the nerve level um, or the synaptic level? Um, so again, this is similar to what we were seeing before. The acetylcholine here is activating the nicotinic receptors and the muscarinic receptors. Acetylcholinesterase is breaking it down. Um, in this case, however, the, uh, the, the receptors alone are, are blocked. Um, and and you generally, they are either the muscarinic or the, nic and, uh, the nicotinic, um, but, but not both. And most of the medications that we're talking about with um, anticholinergic toxidromes are the muscarinic receptors that are affected. What does this lead to? Well, this leads to your classic dry as a bone, hot as a hair, mad as a hatter, red as a beet, blind as a bat, or full as a, and full as a flask. Um, and these are so these are all signs and symptoms that you see um, associated with an anticholinergic uh, toxidrome um, and uh, and is, is very classic for that. So treatment for anticholinergic, so discontinuation of the offending agent, if at all possible, uh, supportive care as always. And then physostigmine. And physostigmine inhibits the degradation of acetylcholine within the synapse, uh, which basically increases the acetylcholine level to allow for an increased amount of acetylcholine within that synapse um, to more likely affect the muscarinic receptors. Interestingly, if a patient presents with um, delirium and other aspects of that toxidrome, they receive physostigmine and their delirium resolves, um, then that's diagnostic of anticholinergic syndrome. Okay, question number three. A man is admitted to the ER after being found on a roof, uh, naked, and attempting to fly. Um, in the ED, he is agitated and has a fever, tachycardia, and rhabdo. He has a seizure and is intubated. His urine tox screen is negative. What's the diagnosis? Uh, so methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, or synthetic cannabinoids. Um, so, you know, thinking about these four different, these four different drugs, um, you know, I think you, you can rule out heroin quickly because this, uh, this patient is not presenting uh, stuporous um, uh, and altered. Uh, rather, they're, they're presenting agitated uh, and uh, psychotic, um, unless they actually can fly. Um, and so that would, that would argue for uh, one of these other three medications, methamphetamines, cocaines, or, uh, cocaine or synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, but the patient's uh, urine tox screen is negative. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that would rule out methamphetamine and cocaine, which usually can be picked up on the urine tox screen, leaving synthetic cannabinoids as the, um, as the correct answer here. Um, and, and the patient was presenting with uh, what's called the sympathomimetic toxidrome. Uh, the sympathomimetic toxidrome is a uh, it results from an overabundance of uh, or an increased release of neurotransmitters, including serotonergic, dopaminergic, or noradrenergic. Um, in this uh, in this schematic here, uh, you see the vesicles of, of neurotransmitters that are dropped here to the receptors, and then the monoamine monoamine transporter actually brings these back and recycles them. Uh, VMAT2 places them back into the vesicles for for recurrent use. VMAT2 being the vesicular monoamine transporter. Um, 
transporter uh, here in uh, associated with the vesicle. Um, the, the different um, uh, drugs associated with the sympathomimetic toxidrome actually reverse uh, the monoamine transporter as well as BMAT2. So that you can see that um, these vesicles no longer will hold the neurotransmitters. They'll be released uh, not only uh, normally uh, through the ves vesicular release, but also out through the monoamine transporter, flooding again the synapse um, and, and overactivating the receptors, which brings many more signals down. Uh, and what do you see from that? So CNS toxicity uh, and psychomotor agitation, uh, psychosis are the main uh, are the main things that you see. Um, teeth grinding, euphoria, anxiety uh, associated with agitation. There can be cardiovascular complications, tachy and bradyarrhythmias, hypertensive emergency to such an extreme that you can develop aortic dissection or intracranial hemorrhage. And then hypothermia, which is thought to be multifactoria, both the to direct toxicity to thermal regulation, but then also secondary to this extreme agitation. Because of this extreme agitation and uh, increased use of muscles, uh, you can develop rhabdomyolysis or renal failure. Um, and death from uh, sympathomimetic abuses uh, due to seizures, cardiac arrest, or hyperthermia. Um, interestingly, many of these things are associated with the downstream effects of the agitation and psychosis that develop. So causes. Um, so, so from a toxidrome perspective and a presentation perspective, uh, it's going to be drugs of abuse, cocaine, amphetamines, synthetic cannabinoids, as I mentioned, then also MDMA or, or the, the active drug in, uh, in ecstasy. Um, these other drugs are also sympathomimetic, uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine. That's, of course, their therapeutic effect as well and, and generally titrated to effect in, our, in the hospital. Treatment is primarily supportive care, and this can be intensive care, uh, obviously. Um, yeah, so, so not only, uh, you know, benzodiazepines for the anxiety and associated um, agitation and, and psychosis, um, but also potentially uh, physical restraints, intubation, and sedation. Um, and that's not only to control the uncontrolled patient, um, but also to to attempt to reduce the, the sort of sympathomimetic and adrenergic surge that's occurring that's causing the increased uh, uh, blood pressure, the uh, increased use of, of uh, muscles uh, and muscle breakdown. Okay, question number four. An 18-year-old presents with meiosis, stupor, and apnea. He's intubated in the ER. Opiate overdose is suspected and naloxone is administered. Which route of naloxone is least effective? Um, so these are four separate routes. There's the intranasal, parenteral, oral, and endotracheal installation. Um, to a certain extent, you either know this question or you don't. Um, the intranasal is, um, is actually what is um, able to be uh, obtained in Washington, D.C. Uh, by, 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 by civilian public um, to be able to utilize if they come across somebody who's had an opiate overdose. Uh, it's very easy to deliver. Uh, to, you know, uh, it, it's a single-use container that just like a flow vent or, or sorry, flow nase spray um, into the nose. Uh, parenteral is what we use in the hospital, uh, right? Um, uh, and then endotracheal installation is what is taught to EMTs um, in the field if they have no IV access. Um, although I suspect that at this point, most of the time, it's also intranasal is used. Uh, so the correct answer by, by, uh, by process of elimination is the oral, oral route. Um, and actually, the oral route, the problem is, is that the medication is, uh, with first-pass metabolism, uh, uh, is uh, um, deactivated uh, and therefore is, uh, is not, as, uh, not as much active medication gets uh, to the mu receptors. 
Um, so opiate overdose uh, in general, obviously we see this in the hospital on patients who have um, received too many opiates in the hospital, uh, but also as an overdose from a poisoning. Um, so the classic triad must be present, and that's respiratory depression, meiosis, and stupor. Um, the, the, the rest of these things on this list are really from opiate um, overdose in the field uh, and a patient being brought down and, and, and brought in. And usually it is, um, th these, are, these are side effects, so hepatic injury from, from Tylenol or hypoxemia, the myoglobinuric renal failure, rhabdo, uh, hypoactive bowel sounds, compartment syndrome, hypothermia. Many of these are secondary to the side effects of prolonged respiratory depression, myo respiratory depression and stupor, really. Um, possible presence of one or more fentanyl patches. Obviously, you want to evaluate your patient and examine them closely in the emergency room if they present this way. Um, interesting point uh, about opiate overdose and treatment. Um, so, you know, again, at the beginning when I said uh, we were talking about just general uh, care of a patient who presents with, with uh, poisoning or, or, or overdose, uh, one of the three things you can give along with glucose and thiamine is naloxone, right? Um, it has a, a minimal risk and, and potentially great benefit if indeed the patient is suffering from an opiate overdose. Um, but I want to point out on this graph, what we see here is the therapeutic dose in terms of time of effect in blue and then overdose in red. So what we see is that, uh, you know, we can predict to a certain extent the therapeutic dose time, time of effect um, uh, of, of our opiates. Um, uh, but you can see that in an overdose setting, um, this can be delayed and also much longer. Um, and this is because of the, 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 the amount of drug in the system. Um, it continues to recycle uh, and stay uh, active um, on the mu receptors. Um, of note, aside from fentanyl, which at least with the therapeutic dose is relatively short-acting, long overdose is obviously long-acting, but aside from fentanyl, um, naloxone is a much shorter-acting drug than any of these other opiates. Uh, and so what I always uh, counsel residents on is that, uh, you know, to, you, you trial one dose of naloxone to see if there's an effect, and that effect will help you to understand, you know, the diagnostic as well as therapeutic treatment, uh, but primarily diagnostic with that one dose. Um, uh, but if you have the patient awaken at that time, um, recognize that most of the time they're going to fall back asleep. They're going to become stuporous again and have respiratory depression. And so most of the time when those patients are presenting, what needs to occur is they need to be transferred from wherever you're evaluating them to a higher level of care, at least for monitoring and often for a Narcan drip where they receive this for long periods of time. And as you can see with substantial morphine overdoses, um, you know, this is three, four days of some effect. Generally, they don't need a, a drip for that long period of time, but, but often for, for, for uh, some hours to days. Okay, question number five. 64-year-old female with a history of depression on sertraline presents with septic shock due to pneumonia. She started on cepapine and linazolid due to a vancomycin allergy. Approximately 12 hours after admission, she develops worsening shock, clonus, and tremor. She's noted to have hyperreflexia and fever on exam. What is your diagnosis? So again, a whole bunch of symptoms, a syndrome, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, certain medications and, and situations that she's in. Uh, so she, the syndrome is that she has um, shock, clonus, tremor, hyperreflexia, and fever. Uh, and the exposures were that she is on some sertraline at home, uh, she got cepapine and linazolid um, in the hospital, and she has an infection. 
So looking through these, uh, these, these answers, um, the correct answer is serotonin syndrome, and we'll go over why. Um, so what serotonin syndrome uh, requires uh, is a, the, the, the syndrome itself is a, is a triad of mental status changes, autonomic hyperactivity, and neuromuscular abnormalities. Um, and the neuromuscular abnormalities are, are a requirement. Um, so, you know, ultra mental status, anxiety, delirium, uh, diaphoresis, medriasis, tachycardia, hyperthermia, and then this neuromuscular abnormalities. You need to have some, some type of neuromuscular abnormality for the diagnosis. Tremor, muscle rigidity is often seen, this hyperreflexia, um, as well as clonus, which is, uh, which is often more pronounced in the lower extremities. Uh, the differential diagnosis can be hard with serotonin syndrome. Um, often this is a diagnosis that can occur in the hospital in patients who have already been in the hospital. And so thinking about other diagnoses like neuroleptic malignant syndrome, um, where they would need to have an antipsychotic exposure, malignant hyperthermia, which is often uh, from inhaled anesthetics or induction during, um, during surgery. Um, those do not have clonus, and that's one way to, uh, to distinguish anticholinergic toxicity. Uh, we've, we've discussed, um, they, they have normal reflexia. Sympathomimetic toxicity uh, generally has a history of ingestion. And then opiate withdrawal um, can be very similar, but without, without clonus. Uh, it's difficult enough to diagnose that there's a criteria associated with it, a hunter serotonin toxicity criteria. Now, the first thing, of course, is the presence of a serotonergic agent. Um, in, her, in, in our patient's case, she was on um, she was on sertraline and then also had an infection, so sertraline here and, and, and plus an infection. And then while, because of the infection, she also received linazolid, uh, which is also serotonergic as well. And so, uh, so those together gives you that presence of a serotonergic agent uh, with a recent addition. Uh, and then they have to meet one of the following conditions, and the sine qua non is the neuromuscular excitation. Um, so either spontaneous clonus or inducible clonus plus um, agitation, diaphoresis, et cetera. Um, but something that is, uh, that is neuromuscular, either clonus or tremor or hyperreflexia. Um, so what is the what is the treatment? Uh, so so this is how a patient might present. Um, again, one of these uh, great drawings from the New England Journal. Um, severe disease is 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 defined as a temperature of over 38.5, uh, and or marked hypertonia or rigidity, which is uh, which can be you know even more concerning when there's truncal rigidity. Um, and this this really indicates a risk of progression uh, with potential respiratory compromise. So when uh, when a patient presents with uh, you know very elevated temperature plus rigidity um, or sort of hypertonia, um, these patients need to be evaluated very quickly, brought to the to the ICU for uh, uh, for supportive care. Um, what is your treatment? So of course you want to stop the serotonergic agent and give them supportive care. Uh, benzos can be given for agitation. Uh, and then ciproheptadine is sort of the quote-unquote antidote for serotonin syndrome. It's a nonspecific serotonin antagonist, uh, so it will, it will attempt to reduce the amount of serotonin in the system. You want to treat profound hyperthermia, which can occur with a uh, temperature of over 41, uh, with sedation, endotracheal intubation, and paralysis. And the thought is that the hyperthermia itself is secondary to the tonic uh, motion of the muscles, bringing, uh, increasing the body temperature itself. So the intubation, sedation, and then, and then actually the paralysis is what will facilitate reduction in that temperature. Um, so in general, you know, that, that was some of the toxidromes that we talked about, but um, thinking about, uh, you know, m uh, pupillary findings um, overall and having that be, uh, you know, part of the physical exam that will point you in one direction or another when thinking about different toxidromes is important. 
So for medriasis, um, you know, sympathomimetics, anticholinergic hallucinogens, and serotonin syndrome will all cause medriasis, as opposed to meiosis, um, where you really think of the opioids, the sedative hypnotics, as well as cholinergics and PCP. Nystagmus can be present. Um, drugs of abuse can cause nystagmus, the barbiturates, PCP, um, but also uh, phenytoin, lithium, uh, and then the, uh, and then the uh, you know, potential um, uh, toxic uh, organophosphates, uh, uh, terror uh, drugs, terror agents. Um, and then, of course, toxic alcohols can also cause nystagmus as well. Uh, so I want to uh, use the, the rest of my time to talk a little bit about toxic alcohols. As a uh, as another um, sort of syndromic effect, but also poisoning. So for question number six, a homeless man is brought into the emergency room with altered mental status and mild nystagmus. His breath has a fruity odor. His ethanol level is zero. His labs are sodium of 130, glucose of 240, BUN of 24, ethanol of zero. Thus, his calculated osms are 282 and his measured serum osms are 310. His ABG is normal. What's the diagnosis? So again, for this talk and to not spend too much time, I, um, I, I truncated the question stem uh, and, uh, and included not only the labs, only, only the labs that were important, but also I calculated the osms for you. Uh, that will not be the case when, uh, when, when you take a test or in real life. Um, so, uh, so this question is, is pointing towards some type of toxic alcohol ingestion, and the question is, is what? Uh, and so the important components here are that um, when you look at the serum osms as well as the measured osms, you note that there is a gap, uh, that there's an increased amount over, the, over 10 to, to, to 20. But at the same time, the ABG is normal, therefore there's no acidosis. Uh, methanol and ethylene glycol will both cause both a, an osmolar gap and an anion gap. Um, isopropyl alcohol will not, and therefore the answer is isopropyl alcohol. Um, so that's the presence of an osmolar gap, but no metabolic acidosis, as I mentioned. So remember, the osmolar gap um, is a gap between the measured and the calculated osmolality. The measured osmolality, uh, osmolality is something that the lab will, will obtain, and that takes into account um, all of these electrolytes, um, as well as other unmeasured uh, electrolytes. Um, and in this case, it would be the toxic alcohols themselves. Um, so this is the equation that you'll need to, to memorize. It includes ethanol, um, of which this patient that we were describing has zero, but that will be one that can be measured and therefore can be included in the calculated osmolality. So the measured minus the calculated is the gap, and normal is between 10 and 20. Um, methanol, ethylene glycol, and alcohol alone are degraded to acid, so there'll be a development of an anion gap acidosis. Um, but isopropyl alcohol degrades to acetone alone, and thus no acidosis. That's shown here, the metabolic pathways of toxic alcohols. So ethylene glycol, methanol, propylene glycol, diethylene glycol, as well as isopropanol, all through metabolic pathway, um, through the use of uh, alcohol dehydrogenase, um, go to a uh, you know, secondary metabolite, which is here. Um, with isopropanol, uh, uh, that is the final pathway, which is acetone. Uh, but aldehyde dehydrogenase is used to work and then creates more acid here. So what you can see is uh, you get this initial profoundly elevated osmolal gap, but then as metabolic uh, metabolism occurs, uh, the anion gap begins to elevate as well. So what are the toxic alcohols? Um, so there are five classic ones. Uh, ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze. 
Um, it's in, found in engine coolants, de-icing fluids, methanol, windshield wiper fluid, racing fuels, camp stoves, adulterated ethanol, um, propylene glycol, and freeze, and brake fluid and hydraulic fluid. So this is all stuff you find in your garage um, if you still have an uh, internal combustion engine car. Um, if you have an electric car, you probably don't have as much of this or a need for as much, uh, particularly the engine coolant or the racing fuels. Um, the isopropanol uh, is found classically in Purell. Now, the ethylene glycol and methanol, as well as isopropanol, um, are used uh, as sort of, uh, you know, um, I don't want to say drugs of abuse necessarily, but used if, if an alcoholic is unable to find, uh, you know, alcohol or afford alcohol, um, or if they're attempting to, to, to improve their alcohol or mixed alcohol, adulterated uh, ethanol, um, then, things, then, then these alternative agents can be found. Um, and patients may not be as aware of them um, when, they're, when they're drinking an alcoholic. At the same time, many of these are, are co-ingestions with alcohol as well. So what are the clinical features? So, so what, the, uh, what the individual who's, who's drinking them is looking for is inebriation, uh, which they are successful with, with ethylene glycol, methanol, and isopropanol. Um, there's also these other side effects um, that can develop um, AKI classically with ethylene glycol, blindness classically with methanol, um, abdominal pain with isopropanol, and systemic effects as well. So the diagnosis, clinical history, obviously, but also have a high index of suspicion. And the reason I say that is because um, many times the patients who present with toxic, toxic alcohol ingestions um, are those who cannot give a good history um, because they're inebriated or they have a history of, um, uh, you know, of, of co-ingestions with other drugs. Uh, and so for all with um, potential risk of toxic alcohol ingestion, ultimate status of, of unclear etiology, um, check labs, uh, you know, obtain, uh, obtain labs and calculate the osmolal gap, look for an anion gap, creatinine, uh, the, the urinalysis for crystals, classically oxalate for ethylene glycol, which also causes the renal failure I mentioned, um, ketonemia for isopropanol, uh, and measure toxic alcohols. The lab will measure these toxic alcohols, but, but don't wait for them to come back to, to initiate treatment if your index of suspicion is high. Um, so as I was referring to before, the, the, the osmolal gap is, uh, is, is elevated early after ingestion, second to, secondary to these unionized alcohols, and the anion gap increases with the formation of ionized metabolites. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's shown here. So this, this I showed before where, um, where these unionized alcohols here become ionized over time, and initially they're, in, they're incorporated into the uh, measured but not calculated um, osmolality. Um, and then over time, they're incorporated into the, uh, into the measured, uh, the calculated anion gap. This graph shows this um, over time in hours. Uh, and what you can see is the osmolal gap will decrease over time as, as, as metabolism occurs, and the anion gap will increase. Um, there are with ethylene glycol, methanol, propylene glycol, and diethylene glycol. Um, but, uh, but you can see that um, if there's a normal osmolar gap, because we're over towards this area where it's been a while, in hours since this ingestion, um, it, you really cannot rule out the toxic ingestion. Of note also is that, as I mentioned before, there's often multiple co-ingestions when, when somebody presents with a toxic alcohol exposure. Um, and so with co-ingested alcohol, these, uh, these 
this graph changes, uh, and the osmolar gap will stay high longer. The uh, anion gap will stay low longer as well. So what is the treatment? Um, so, so, so first, as I mentioned before, do not delay. Uh, methylene, methanol and ethylene glycol, um, uh, you want to inhibit the, uh, inhibit the metabolism as much as possible by competitively inhibiting the alcohol dehydrogenase. Uh, so one way to do that is uh, to give IV ethanol, um, which is not FDA approved and we do not give it. Uh, but the more, the, the more likely choice is going to be fomepazole, which is a strong inhibitor. Um, it's effective at low concentrations with minimal side effects, and it prolongs the half-life of toxic alcohol. Um, the, the key here is that your body is going to metabolize the toxic alcohol, but if it metabolizes it all at once, then many of those downstream effects will become more apparent. Um, dialysis is an option. Um, it's recommended if, uh, if there's severe acidosis. Um, elevated serum concentrations, visual changes, or AKI, of course. I mean, actually, in this case, you want to trial, trial and use um, IHD as opposed to uh, CRRT uh, because there's more rapid removal of the toxic alcohol itself. Okay. Well, um, I'm sorry that the participant did not work. Um, I, was, I, I kind of rushed through those questions instead of the uh, awkward silence that often ensues with, um, with Zoom. Um, but I hope this was informative, um, and I'm happy to take any questions um, if anybody has any. I will say one last thing, of course, is that uh, when, when in doubt, um, call poison control. Um, it's free and very helpful. Thank you all for your time.